Um, what funny things happened to you lately? <laughs> uh, funny. Think funny. It's a lot of pressure. Like this it is, is this is like five minutes before I come down here. I used to get nervous about what we were going to talk about on the show, and now I get out. <laughs> like I'm pretty confident in that ability, but it's like, what are we going to use for the beginning of the show? That right there. Uh, okay, now we're done. <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Hi, Derek. Hey, Sean. So I shipped diesel. Yeah, you which did. Is the name. Yeah, I got to commit in there. I'm pretty excited. For, for those wondering what diesel is, it's the Rust ORM that we've been talking about. It is now released, and it is called diesel. Formerly yeah. YAQB. Correct. But you can still go to that repo, GitHub redirects well, although you can't go to the old docs because it won't redirect GitHub pages for some reason. That's okay. I don't think too many people had that bookmark yet. Yeah. But yeah, it kind of, uh, so I released 0.1 on Sunday, and it kind of got a lot more attention than I expected, which would normally be good, but it was, a, it was slightly a problem because I had a couple of like major fundamental breaking API changes I wanted to make, and I thought I was going to have more time to do that, but then once like it started getting traffic, I'm like, oh crap, maybe I should like make these right now before people are depending on the old behavior. So then I rushed out a 0.2 release the very next day with like all of the breaking changes that I was sure I wanted to make. Yeah, it's not a bad strategy, but also like I don't know how it is in the Rust community, but like it's still pre 1.0. Like in the Ruby community, we're perfectly happy to use things that are 0.4. Point whatever for seven or eight years. Like like MySQL no two. Right, <laughs> right. That's the example you sent me the other day. Like it's been out for how long, and it's at 0.4 right now. Yeah, it's at 0.4.3, I think, and like every Rails app using MySQL is using this gem, but they're still not confident that that they have a stable public API. I don't know. I mean, we could get into a whole thing on semantic versioning, right? Uh, We should actually link to the post. Richard Schneeman recently wrote a post on like what's semantic versioning all about. Um, Kind of not like we've all seen the Semver, or many of us anyway, have seen the Semver.org thing, and he kind of breaks it down into why why those decisions were made and under what circumstances you would bump what, et cetera, et cetera. But what he doesn't touch on is the, the special case that pre-1.0 versions get and then the fear that people have in declaring a 1.0. Right. I think it might have been linked to in Richard's post or I might have just seen it somewhere else, but there was another post I read recently that talked about the biggest argument against semantic versioning is the, basically the lack of being able to use your major versions for marketing. And like, if I followed Semver, I'd be on my library version 37, and that would be dumb. And basically, this post proposes like uh, that for releases that you want to do for marketing, don't use version numbers, use code names. Windows XP. Windows XP. Diesel. Yes. Diesel Vista. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but you know, you know. So that way, like, you still get to be like, here is the release that I would like to give a fancy marketing name. But then what actual number that is is irrelevant. Similar to like if Android followed Semver, you know, basically what they do with their releases. Right. I mean, I guess it's different in Java, right? Because I'm thinking like Java 8 is actually not Java 8.0. It's Java 1.8. But I don't think they're following Semver there. So it's, you know, it's a little different. But No, they are. They, I don't think they've ever made a breaking change to Java. Like, to the compiler, ever. yeah. Or, to the, or even to the standard library. There's still stuff in there that is deprecated since version 1. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's, I remember Aaron saying on stage once, I don't remember the context, but he was giving some talk and was like, 
you know, I can't bump us to Rails 5 because this security uh, vulnerability technically requires a breaking change to fix. It's like, but you can. You, you just don't need to have Rails 5 be the, the thing that, you know, is, is the thing for marketing. You can have it be Rails Zulu. I don't know. <laughs> Come up with, you know, coming up with some actual fun naming scheme. But, right, uh, I mean, there's several libraries that just go through letters, right? So you're like, yeah. you have Ubuntu, which just picks letters, illiterate letters of the alphabet. Um, and then you have, you know, Android, which uses lettered snacks or whatever. Desserts, yeah. And nowadays they do marketing videos before every version release that's like, what name will it be this time? And right. it's gotten kind of dumb, but... <laughs> I mean, that, but that also, I guess, the fact that they can do that and people watch those and actually speculate also kind of is evidence that that can work really, really well for marketing names. Yeah, I mean, I think browsers to, a, to an extent have proven that version numbers aren't valuable for marketing necessarily. Like, you know, Chrome does X. I don't really care about what version of Chrome does X. Like, I'm going to be on chrome most recent right and that's a little different because right. there aren't like breaking changes in chrome that i need to be compatible with generally i mean there are well there are but yeah but they, as an end user of the browser i typically don't care about them developers right. do i mean it actually is kind of a good example right like so as a developer using a library i care um what the particular breaking changes are but they don't, they don't follow semver right they just increment the version number every release right for chrome but yeah. and but i still like it's only when there's a problem do I actually care, like, well, what version of Chrome are you running? Or if I'm explaining to somebody some new feature in the inspector, right? I'm like, oh, you need to close Chrome and reopen, and then you'll have this feature. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I didn't want to derail your diesel talk. No, but. no, it's fine. I mean, it's, it is a thing I, I, I'm, I'm liking about Rust is that, uh, like, the community is pretty hardcore about Semver. We do have an explicit definition of what a breaking change is for a Rust library. Um, Interesting. So there's an... There's an RFC out there that lays it out, it out, lays out what does Semver mean for Rust the language and what uh, does Semver mean for libraries for Rust. Of course, nothing is going to force you to actually follow that, but in theory, right, like to be compliant with the official Rust way, you have to follow Semver and you have to consider specific things breaking changes. Yeah, I mean, that's part of my problem is main, in maintaining clearance that I've talked about before is like almost everything I do in that library could be considered a breaking change if you think about it long enough. Right. Well, and and there's a lot of places where like because the, basically the general definition of a breaking change is um, does this change cause existing code to stop compiling, um, and then of course does this cause existing code to work differently? Which but that one's obvious. Um, but there's a, a, a lot of uh, places where you're allowed to bend the rules, where like in theory a change could cause some code to stop compiling, but if we actually consider that breaking change, nobody could do anything ever without bumping the major version. And so then the litmus test based in general, the litmus test is could a library easily um, prepare in a forwards compatible way for this change? Because most of them are like if they're if, if a library is glob importing. So if they're just doing uh, use library colon colon star. So bring everything into into my current namespace because libraries can do that in 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 theory. Right. Adding anything to any existing module is a breaking change. And in fact, adding a new module is also a breaking change. Is that just just because you could be overwriting something? Because you could then, yeah, they could be glob importing, and, and then you, the thing you could be adding might have a namespace conflict with something else that's already there. Right. And I imagine at that point it wouldn't compile anymore, or would it just... Right, okay. it'll fail to compile. Whenever you try to import the second one, it'll say uh, item named X is already in scope, or something along those lines. Hmm. 
But so we don't consider that to be a breaking change because you can just, you know, you can stop glob importing and just specifically import the things you need. Right. That makes sense. So you said usage, people are starting, it got a lot of attention. I know that. How is usage in your experience? Like, are people giving you good feedback on it? Yeah, I've gotten one issue. This actually happened before I released it because um, I had a couple of people who started using it just from finding it um, from us talking, I guess. And there's one major hole that's been identified in the API. But overall, I've gotten from everybody I've talked to who's tr- who's been trying it out. They've really they've really liked it. Of course, the feedback of all the people who are who've just like read through the announcement and the readme are like, "Oh, this looks so cool," which is very different from like, "But does this actually work for your use case in real world apps?" Which is why I'm. Released, you know, why I released it to the world to try and like figure out if I need to make additional changes to fill it in there. I've gotten a lot of people requesting my SQL support. Um, one person requesting SQLite support, which he actually made a compelling argument, which is if this is going to be useful for embedded programs, I have to support SQLite. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is more compelling to me than like you should support my SQL because my SQL, which I probably, if I'm going to support SQLite, I'll probably support my SQL because once I can support two, I can probably support N. Right. Now you're just talking about having adapters and. Figuring yeah. out the various intricacies of each one of those things. Yeah, it's just, I've been thinking through in my head, like, okay, what do I need to do? And it's just going to be tricky. But I'll figure it out. But yeah, feedback's been good. Uh, I've been getting a decent number of issues. I've been trying to, like, establish what that list that I'm kind of keeping in my head of, oh, yeah, and this is a thing that we don't have that, like, of course we need to have, but I just haven't gotten around to it yet and actually open an issue for that. And Whenever I do that, it seems like somebody comes along and does it for me. So that's good. Oh, that's awesome. You're getting contributions then? Yeah, yeah. I think I had six or seven in the last two days, pull requests, and then a dozen or so issues. You're up to, it says you're up to seven contributors, and several of them have multiple commits. So that's cool. And I've got, I think, like just under 300 stars, which given that I announced it four days ago now, I feel like it's a pretty, pretty good number. Right. Yeah, that's good. I got some traction. I saw it on uh, lobster, lobsters, <laughs> L-O-B-S, L-O-B-S-T-E dot R-S, uh, which is actually like if anybody out there is like out there refreshing Hacker News a lot and you're actually interested in more more of the technical stuff that comes across Hacker News and less of the marketing startup stuff, you can go to that website. Uh, you just need to be invited by somebody. So if you need an invite, tweet us at underscore bike shed. We'll get you invited there because some interesting stuff happens there. Definitely a lot more technical than Hacker News. I was going to ask you about the hole in the API. Is that interesting to discuss? Yeah. What's there? I forget. I, it's something about updating. I remember I read through yeah, this issue. Yeah. So basically there's two parts to diesel right now. There's diesel core and then there's diesel code gen. Uh, and diesel code gen basically just generates a lot of the boilerplate. That's very common. Just because I, I, I have a lot of APIs that, that are super generic and accept all kinds of different things. And so, for example, if you want to pass something to insert, it needs to implement the insertable trait. And the insertable trait is generally not terribly interesting. It's just saying, like, hey, the columns that, I, um, that I'm going to insert into are, and then all of the names of the fields on your struct, and, then, and the values are, and then accessing those fields on your struct. And that's generally it. And so I have um, some generators that can generate queryable for reads, uh, insertable for creates, um, and then change set for for updates. And this is specifically being able to use a struct and say like, hey, make these changes to this record. And it will always exclude the primary key. Because mm-hmm. um, you can either, when you do, so you do like update, and then whatever target you want to update, dot set, and then you pass it whatever changes you want to make. And that can either be a bunch of uh, equality predicates. So you can do like up, uh, dot set, name dot EQ, Sean, 
and then if you want, you can do you know comma, hair color dot eq black etc. Uh, or you can have a struct, and then you just pass in the struct. And then if the struct has uh, ID on it, I won't set the ID, and I'll also generate an additional method that will let you update that specific record in the database. Um, so that way you don't have to you don't have to write over and over again update users filter ID EQ one. Anyway, so the 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 whole there is that uh, when you have an option on that struct, I assume that that's going into a nullable field. And if the value is there, I set the value. And if the value is none, I set null. Uh, the use case I did not consider is, well, what if you actually want to have that be an optional update? Right. So like, so a quick rundown of where that might come in is like a JSON API. You have a user. Um, his name is Sean. He has black hair. And you want to update his hair color. So you send over some JSON that just has the ID for Sean and hair color red. Right. And now... F- for the your name is not optional, right? So right, and so what that would do is it would update the hair color and set the name to null, or it gets to the, if the name's not nullable, it will fail to compile. Right. So yeah, you know, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, do you ever actually want to update null? Um, null something out? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like I'm starting to wonder if that's even just so uncommon. Because my initial reaction was, okay, well, I'll just add like an option or maybe a separate annotation. But basically, like if you want to have none, insert null, you do this, and if you want it to be optional, you do this. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to even wonder if like it's worth having the code gen support the null case. Because I feel like the more I think about, it, the more I'm like, do you ever really actually want to do that? And if I don't support it in code gen, you can still just manually do set uh, thing eq none, right. and that'll still that'll still insert null. I'm trying to think of times where I've done that. It's never been for a good reason. <laughs> um, the only thing I can think of is like foreign keys, nullifying foreign keys when relationships are destroyed. But that probably wouldn't be something you would pass in and be like, I want to set this foreign key to null. Well, and I'm also going to like the, the conventional way. I'm, uh, I'm going to try and have... The, I'm going to try and make it so the conventional way to do that with um, diesel is uh, cascade nullify. Right, yeah. Don't do that in application code. Database right. do it. Actually, right. does the database have cascade? I mean, you can do it with a trigger, of course, but does it actually have like cascade nullify? It might uh, only have cascade delete. Like, what, I don't remember. what is the use case for nullify? It's like basically things can be associated to an object or they cannot be associated to an object. And if so, like, let's say you have people and they belong to a classroom or something, a class, you could right. have people and then you delete the classroom. You still want to keep the people records around and you just want to leave them unassociated to a classroom or something like that. Right. If, you, if, if it's an optional belongs to basically. Which is so uncommon that belongs to is required by default in Rails 5. Like literally belongs to by default will add a presence validation. In Rails 5? Yeah. Uh, Existing apps won't be affected. You'll get a deprecation warning. There's a config option that if you generate a new app, that config option will be set to true. And if you're on an existing app, when you upgrade to Rails 5, you'll get a a warning saying, hey, this behavior is going to change. Mm-hmm. And then you either explicitly set that option to false, and then everything else stay the same forever, or you can explicitly set it true and go, and go like set required false, pass required false to any that you have that are actually optional, and for the rest, like just go delete a bunch of code because you probably just have a bunch of redundant presence validations. Or even better, it is not optional, but you forgot the presence validation, and now we just fixed a mistake. Right. I think it was a needless change to the default. Like I actually was against making that making it cha- uh changing it by default even though I liked having the required true thing on belongs to, but more it's just like to the point that 
actually wanting to nullify out a foreign key is pretty uncommon. Uh, follow up, it does look like there is an on delete set null in Perfect. Postgres. So there you go. Yeah, that sounds good. I like. I was saying earlier. I tweeted out last week that I you had posted like some issues. Like if you're totally new, here's some stuff you can might be able to work on. And I picked up one of them, which was like setting, creating the predicates for is null and is not null. And it was really interesting to write some real code. <laughs> and it was also it also dovetailed nicely into the discussion we had with Yehuda before, where there's like Rust allows you to do really encode really crazy things in types, right? And when you're working on a system like this ORM, you've got to keep all of these types kind of in your head and figure out, like, how do I fulfill these contracts, right? And it gets really complicated. And so as I was trying to write the code, to impl- I started by writing the test, right? So I started by writing the test for is null, and I was like, wow, this makes sense, right? This is really easy to use. And then I got into implementing it, and I was like, yep, this is definitely more complicated. So it kind of, like, reminded me of that discussion we had that, like, a good library for something like this, for something like an ORM, hides all of that complexity but still gives you a very nice API to use. And it's not kid gloves, kind of, right? So it's still powerful. But definitely it was, <laughs> like, I thought, oh, this will be easy. And then it wasn't actually that hard to implement those things because there was a halfway decent pattern already in place that I just kind of had to tweak a little bit. But uh, it was my first time writing Rust code that wasn't, like, straight out of a tutorial. So it was fun. Yeah. And it's, you know, crazy generic, so it's always going to look a little weirder. Right. Right. And that's what it, that's like, it's going to look weirder than what you would write in a production app, perhaps. And that's, I think, what Yehuda was talking about when he was talking about, you know, needing to put on your computer science hat and, (laughs) or dig into these, these things a little more than you would in app code. Yeah, no, I've, I've really, I've only, uh, I've, I've found two main places where, where the abstraction really leaks right now. And I don't have, and they're leaking because I don't have the tools to fix it yet, but I'm trying to get them. Uh, the first one is I can generate some really, just really bad error messages. Like if your code's failing to compile and it's because like you tried to do select posts.name but posts isn't part of your, your query. Depending if, if that's like after three inner joins and a bunch of filters and, you know, call to order or something, uh, like the error message that you might actually get is the trait query is not implemented for, and then a really long type, basically listing out, uh, it'll say select statement, then listing out literally everything that you've ever called um, and potentially taking up your entire terminal. And it's doing that because it's figured out, okay, well, it, for this to implement as query, that means that like uh, all of these other constraints have to be satisfied. Um, and sometimes it's very frustrating, actually, and I can't figure out what, uh, when it happens. Sometimes it will be really, it will be too clever, and I'll see, oh, I just need this constraint and this constraint and this constraint and this constraint, and I can drive this thing 10, ten levels down when the thing 10 levels down is like the trait column is not implemented for integer, which is a nonsense thing for it to suggest, but it's figured out, oh, all columns are automatically expressions. Therefore, if you implement column, you get that, which means you'll get all, you know, yada, 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 yada. Um, but I, I actually really don't want it to do that. I just want it to give you the top level thing because the top level thing, selectable expression, posts, name is not implemented for users, table, something like, you know. And then other times it will not go through any of the constraints and we'll just give the really terrible error message at the very top of that stack. Anyway, so that's the first place. And then the second place is uh, it can sometimes be hard to abstract over this nicely in the sense of a named scope in Rails. So what I've done is made it fairly easy for you to return a thing that you would pass to filter without revealing any information. And you're just saying, like, I'm go- like the signature of your, of your function will be, I will return an arbitrary thing that can be uh, passed to filter, and it works with this table. 
and that's in my experience, the majority of scopes in Active Record are just calling where. But if you then also wanted to say call order, what you actually are going to return is a is a query. And while you can do that, I've definitely got it set up so you can just say I'm going to return an arbitrary SQL query that has a return value of like this shape. But the problem is you won't actually be able to call any more methods on that. You won't be able to call filter or order or what have you because all of the evidence that like this thing is allowed to be passed to filter is now lost and I don't have a great way to like encapsulate in one type a query that returns this and then like matches all of the things that you can call on this other type without then revealing that that other type is there. So what I've ended up doing is giving a bunch of helper helper types where basically you state your implementation in the in the return type. So like if you're calling filter, then you'll be capital F filter, angle bracket, and then your arguments to filter, and then you'll just chain that for everything you call and and that causes it to leak because I just right now I don't have a great way for you to not need to know the concrete type to do anything else with it. So it leaks a little bit in those two places, but I've been, you know, trying to push the limits of it as I've experimented with using it. And I've been trying to like, okay, I want to really abstract over this and like hide all this information away. And it ha- it just really hasn't been as bad as I thought it was going to be. Like the named scope one in particular can be- get a little redundant. Most of the time in Rails, you're just calling where. So returning a thing that you would have passed to where is fine. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. So what's next? I mean, there's a laundry list of features that I want to get done. There's a couple of uh, there are a couple of things that need to happen in the language for me to make some changes that will really improve everything. I proposed a uh, I, I opened an RFC a while back to make one of them because I've got I've got I've got this issue. So I have this thing called selectable expression, and it's a trait that has no behavior. It's only used to it, it's called a marker trait. It's only used just marker type as something. Um, you know, the, the main ones you hear about in Rust are send and sync, which mark something to, uh, as safe to be sent across threads and safe to be shared across threads, also have no behavior. And Rust has the rule that you cannot ever have overlapping implementations of traits, because if they overlapped, then some of the times it would be ambiguous what code to call. However, there's actually no reason that we need to disallow that for marker traits. Because they don't have any code to call. <laughs> exactly. And so, for example, I have this hacky little thing where I implement selectable expression. When you use my, the has many macro... I actually go and look at every column on your table and say, all right, now implement selectable expression for every single one of these individually for inner join source of parent table and child table. Because I can't, what I want to be able to write is just impulse selectable expression query source type for uh, inner join source left, right, where left is a table that can be joined to right and the column is selectable from left. And then um, that exact same thing, but where it says column is selectable from right. And you would think that those uh, don't overlap, but they actually do because there's no evidence that left and right are different types. Right. And so I have no, I have no way of actually then saying that in a way that doesn't overlap right now. Um, there's another feature called specialization, which will come eventually, and there's a specific aspect of that that will allow me to work around this. But more likely to happen in the near future is just this change will get implemented so that I can just say that. And they will still overlap, but the language just won't care. Let's take just a quick moment to tell you about today's sponsor. It's Thinkful. Thinkful provides online design and development classes that set apart from their competitors by their emphasis on one-on-one mentorship from experts. When you sign up for Thinkful, you'll be paired with an experienced engineer with whom you'll meet once a week as you learn to build a website or application with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and jQuery. Thinkful is a great fit for designers that want to bring their comps to life with code or beginners that want to become software engineers. They also have courses for more intermediate developers looking to pick up new tools and frameworks such as Rails, Angular, and Node. 
For 20% off your enrollment, visit thinkful.com slash bike shed. That's T-H-I-N-K-F-U-L dot com slash bike shed. Our thanks to Thinkful for supporting the show. Have you, you, you mentioned, you sent me a couple diffs a while ago of like you playing around with this library in crates.io, mm-hmm. which is the code that runs Cargo's back end or front end, I guess, right? Have you had any luck actually? Are you going to actually merge any of that? Is it merged or are you just like trying no, it's- it? It's not merged. Like I'm, I, I don't know if I'll ever actually get around to fully porting it to, and opening a pull request. I did end up submitting a pull request that's just like all of the places where I was having to change the schema to make things nicer, um, which was basically rely on database defaults, use triggers for things that can be done with triggers. Um, and so I submitted a pull request like with all of those changes. And then right now I have no port code actually because um, once I got to the point where... I ported the crates index action to diesel and it felt pretty okay. And then like I, and I had identified, I, I figured all the things I was unhappy with at that point. And I was just going through and I, and I started thinking like, I'm just now porting this. Like this is no longer ne- really leading to any major changes in the API. I've identified everything I, else I want to do for, for 0.1. I'm going to release 0.1. Mm-hmm. Um, but all the changes that I had identified at that point were like major breaking changes of what was there at that time. So basically all of my existing port code is actually most of it's probably still valid, but I also just want to start from scratch and do it a little bit cleaner. Right. And then go further and see if there's anything else that uncovers, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess, I guess I probably will. Cause probably my litmus test for 1.0 will be, I'll just keep trying <laughs> until I, until I finish it. And once I finish it and I feel good with what that entire application looks like, then I'll ship 1.0. Yeah. That's a good plan for it. That. And I'll probably also, want to have at least spiked on if not completely added support for a second database at least spiked on it enough that i'm confident that it won't require breaking changes because that's the that's the thing that right now is is highest risk of like having breaking changes to the api bringing in bringing in additional adapters right making my existing api generic for that where do you see breaking changes coming for that i try to be a little bit generic in places like the query builder is called P, like there, you know, the query, there's a, a separate query builder interface and a, and a concrete PG implementation, but like the native SQL type trait has a method on it called OID. Okay, and that's a Postgres thing. That's a Postgres thing. Okay, that's the uh, it's the numeric identifier of a type. Okay, and you know, there's a bunch of stuff in my expressions module that's Postgres specific. Right. So then you need to take that a layer further up, I guess, where you have like an abstract notion of the SQL type, and then the concrete Postgres one and the MySQL one and a was a SQLite or whatever, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and then just representing that because there is code that is not specific that needs to rely on like these types, but these types will actually behave completely differently. You know, like I need to have the constraint of native SQL type. And as far as I can tell, I don't actually have a great place to put the OID function other than on native SQL type. But I also need to be able to use that type for not Postgres. So what I'm thinking is what I'll end up doing is I will have a separate library that defines the type native SQL type and then uh, inside of diesel, I will actually re-export that. So I'll do pub use diesel Postgres colon colon types colon colon native SQL type, which then means that everything else it'll will be able to say diesel native SQL type, and it will specifically be the Postgres one. And then I'll just uh, put a configuration attribute on each of those. So like config feature equals Postgres. Use the Postgres one, config, feature equals MySQL, use the MySQL one, et cetera, et cetera. The downside to that is I will need to add that one line for any third-party adapter. So if anybody wants to support a third-party adapter, they will need to sub- basically submit a pull request to 
do that. Seems okay. I don't know. It's always nice when you don't have to do that, but... I would prefer not to, because it also means that if they update, I need to update as well, just to bump the, the dependency. Oh, right. That always does end up being a mess. <laughs> but right now, I don't have a better idea, but I've really only been thinking about it today, because I got that issue for my uh, for SQLite 3 support, and I think that'll be the next one I target, if any, because especially with Rust, the embedded use case just makes sense. Yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of its use right now, right? Um, not quite. There's actually still... Um, like it still relies on a Unix kernel, basically, okay. uh, or not a Unix kernel, but like it relies a little bit too much on stuff that you wouldn't want in embedded systems necessarily. But there is an unstable feature called no standard, where you just don't have the standard library. Oh, that's the other thing, actually. If I really want to work with for embedded, I need to not use the standard library. If <laughs> I'm breaking out a subsection of it called core, which actually I think most of the standard library I'm using is in core. The only thing I'm not that's in standard, not core, is probably C-string. Right. Cool. Where should people, what, what can people do if they want to help out? Um, come check out the issues. If you don't see any that look uh, like actionable or easy, shoot me a tweet. There's probably something I can, I can come up with. Yeah, there's our, there's, right now there's one, ta- one in there tagged easy for newcomers. Hopefully there'll be some more. Or maybe yeah, there'll be I've, none. <laughs> like no I've, issues, they'll all be solved. I've started to up my bar a little bit for what I consider easy for newcomers up the bar meaning like i've been marking things easy for newcomers that probably weren't quite so easy for newcomers it depends on how you define newcomer right do you mean newcomer to this project do you mean newcomer to rust like i'm mostly equating those like there are definitely experienced rust people coming but i think more often than not uh, i'm getting a lot of people who like are newer to rust looking at this right now right i'd imagine particularly a lot of people who are familiar with rails right being like i know what active record looks like and this is kind of like that and interesting because it uses the types i mean that's abs- like we didn't talk about that we kind of glossed over it because we talked about it ad nauseum but it's just really cool to see what the types can do like when i was doing that small change it was like i wrote one feature test for it and then i and then it was like does it compile yeah and then once it compiled the feature test passed like it was like of course it's gonna pass like i did everything right and you know i know how to write the string is null and is not null so we're good like yeah. <laughs> that particular one was pretty easy. Some of them were probably more complicated, but you also no, said, but it, it also like, you know, we were talking after you did that and I, uh, I've thought about it more and I'm almost, I'm like 99% positive I could do this where, so I constrain you can, if you select a column that is nullable, you must read it into an option because we don't have the concept of null in rust. We have an optional value. And so if a column is nullable and you're selecting it, you have to read it into an option. And after he added, uh, after Derek added is null and is not null, I started thinking to myself, you know what? I could probably set this up so that if is null is anywhere in your where clause and there is no or clause, any, uh, or even if there is an or clause and is not null is like on both sides, I can probably actually set up enough evidence in this type system to then be able to say like, okay, and now you can select this thing into not an option, which I'm not going to do because just it's probably a bad idea. But I thought it was just so cool that I actually would be able to do that without losing any safety. Yeah. And that's like the interesting conversations we have, right? It was like, that's one that we had. And then like a quicker one that we had was basically like, right now you can call is null on a column that's not nullable, right? And that's valid SQL. We could easily make it so you can't do that because it's wasteful, right? I mean, I, could, I don't think Postgres is, Postgres probably just discard it. So it wouldn't really matter. But you could do that, right? Right. So just interesting things that you can do with the types that you couldn't do when you are representing everything with hashes. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, well, and, and, and that's the other thing. Like, um, you start to realize 
So uh, I've been I had a discussion on the forums with somebody who um, was saying like, oh, cool, I'll take this, uh, you know, I'll take this as inspiration. Like I've been thinking about doing something similar. I'm like, well, if you want to do something similar, like let's see if we can work together here. Uh, <laughs> you know, what are you thinking? And he wants to do something a little closer to SQL Alchemy from Python. And throughout this idea of a, uh, I don't I don't remember what the actual macro was, but it's basically some sort of macro that's like something something SQL. Um, oh, format SQL, and basically gives you the Rust formatter for um, bind params in SQL, so that way you don't have to worry about dollar sign one, dollar sign two, or question marks. If you want to do like additional fancy formatting stuff, you can. Like, oh yeah, that seems like a cool idea. Like, if I if I'm going to write raw SQL, which I, is a thing I want to eventually just support, is like you just give me a raw SQL query, but still be safe. I would much rather do the Rust format syntax than dollar sign one. Dollar sign two, etc. What's the, how's that differ? What's the Rust format syntax? Um, so the simplest form is just uh, curly brace, curly brace. All oh, right, um, and then that like figures out the right printf to do for you. And then there's curly brace colon question mark to for debug output, and you can put stuff in there if you want to do floating formatting. There used to be a plural helper in there, which I'm glad they removed because that's a little too much for something like that. But it's basically just smart printf and works as a compile time macro. Right, I'm familiar with that now that you mention it. Yeah. So, um, but the thing is, there's actually data types that are represented differently. Like the same type in Rust, they might actually be represented very differently when you're going to the database, depending on what type uh, it needs to serialize to. Um, so, an example is string. So, text and varchar happen to be the same. You don't have to. You don't have to wor- uh, worry about like. If that's the only case where the representation going to the database would differ, you don't have to worry about it. Those are represented exactly the same. But then there's binary, which actually is very different. And okay, so, and then you can say, okay, well, fine. String's not the right type for that. Uh, it should be a slice of bytes or a vector of bytes. But cool, but now vec or slice are ambiguous, right? Because now uh, you don't know if it's binary or some kind of array. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's just one example. There, there's a bunch of others that, that, that come out of that. And so it ultimately comes down to you actually do... To properly serialize it, need to really know all the types, and you can you can fork on it on, at runtime if you really need to by preparing the statement, and then you can get that the type information that way, and then have basically a runtime switch on the OID. But that feels dirty to me, and it also opens opens you up to you know runtime errors. Like, okay, but what if you've passed a string and the, this parameter is actually an integer? Like, and then same for coming out, right? Because uh, that's that's part of it. So one of the questions I've been getting that I, I was surprised by it wasn't like, why should I use this over existing library X? It's a lot of people were like, why should I use this over just raw SQL? Right. And for the query builder side of it, to me, it's like, okay, well, why do you use Rust instead of evaling strings in Java or in JavaScript? <laughs> like SQL is not actually type safe. It, I mean, it is type safe, but not in our usage. In the, in, if you're, if you're you know, typing into the database, it is. But in usage and applications, you are basically evaling a string and have nothing, and have nothing until runtime to tell you whether or not that's correct. Right. And as with all cases uh, where you, you, you can't get told correctness until runtime, like there are errors that you might not catch and you have to write more tests. So anyway, so I've, I've, I've had this idea for a while that I might try and execute soon of like, Basically, that exact macro that that guy mentioned, but I establish a database connection at compile time, prepare the statement at compile time, and then get the type information that way. Hmm. And the thing is, this actually makes your programs faster. Like, all of what I'm doing, it's not just for me being like, oh, type safety, correctness, yada, yada. It actually makes your programs faster because I can remove a bunch of runtime checks. I can, I can write code that 
if I didn't have these compile time checks, would be hor- horrendously unsafe. And I will, and that's why I also do want to have one runtime check, which is verify the schema is what I compiled against. But um, somebody asked me for benchmarks comparing it to Rust Postgres, so I whipped up a, a handful where basically I took selecting one user, selecting uh, 10,000 users, both for a simple query and a complex query, uh, and then doing the same in, in Postgres. And not only was there a lot less code in the, in the diesel form, it consistently ran 25 to 33% faster than writing the query by hand uh, and using Rust Postgres directly. Wow. And that's just all the types, basically, because you can get, like you said, you can get rid of all those runtime checks. I can get rid of runtime checks. Um, another part of it is probably coming from the fact that if you are using Rust Postgres or any raw database adapter, you're likely going to be getting the values out of the row by name instead of by index. And I don't have to do that. I can always get it by index, which means that I don't have to go look up what position that name is. You can always get it by index because you know the select clause? Yes. Right. And, I ne- and I never generate select star. Right. So what is you mentioned having checking against the schema that you were compiled against. Right now, you don't check schema at all, right? Or right. do you? Okay. So that's like a future thing. Yeah, that's a future thing. That'd be the kind of thing that you'd run once at app boot. You know, there's, there's been people who have raised various concerns about like, okay, but how do we do this if we're running migrations and don't want to reboot? And there's a ton, a ton of considerations that they're going to go into that. It's probably going to go through multiple iterations. Right. So currently, there isn't like migrations or anything like that. It's just like you declaratively say, my table looks like this. And if you deployed to an environment where your table didn't look like that, well, sorry. Then, right. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, then, you, then you'll, I mean, you won't get it, you, you, your program won't crash. It might crash. It might <laughs> crash if you, it will crash if, like, you're actually so wrong that the query, like, you're, you're wrong in the right way that the query executes successfully, but I try and read it incorrectly. So, like, it goes into an integer, but the bytes that come out of it are not a valid integer, or... It's null, but uh, like null gets read right into a non-nullable column. Those those will ca- those will crash. They won't cause memory unsafety, but they will cause your program to crash. And then there are the other things. Uh, other forms of wrongness wouldn't cause your program to crash if like a column isn't there. Your que- your queries won't run. You'll get back a error object when you try and execute the query, but it won't crash your application unless you unwrap the error. Do you think that this project's place is to provide migrations? Like, shouldn't could that be some other project where like do we have to reinvent a migration DSL here? Like. What are you thinking for that? So I'm thinking that the place it will start is a thing that does have an automatic schema migrations table and like figures out what migrations to run and whatnot. And then the thing that I know for a fact I want to support is a SQL file with a timestamp. I don't know if I want anything else, but I know I, I at least want that. And if I do also want a Rust DSL, I want to be able to arbitrarily mix and match. So the first version will just be a thing that like figures out what migrations to run automatically, has a way of checking if all the migrations have been run, and then looks in a folder of timestamped SQL files and runs them sequentially. I worked on a system before that had its own, when I was at Akamai, basically, they have their own Postgres, their own bootstrapping built up around Postgres, basically, and they deploy Postgres thousands of times a day. And so they had a migration system that was like, because not all frameworks are like Rails, where you get migrations out of the box. So they had a migration syntax. And I used that when I was using Rails apps and when I was building Rails apps and did not use migrations in, from Rails. It was actually pretty nice. So like it had, like writing it all in SQL meant that you didn't need to care <laughs> about whether or not 
the Rails migration syntax had a method in the DSL to do a thing you wanted to do. You could do whatever you wanted to do. Like as long as you knew how to write the SQL, you could do it. And each one had, I think the way it worked was, I can't quite remember. I think it might have been like timestamped folders and then there'd be an up.sql and a down.sql or something like that because you also have to be, also had to be able to go back down. You're right. Um, yep. And the other nice thing about it was the migrations were a different project from the app code. So you could roll back the app code when you had a problem and the migrations were still there deployed on the machine because you haven't rolled those back yet. So then you can roll back the migration. Because I see when people do have to roll back, they like roll back the code and they're like, okay, now I need to roll back the migrations. <laughs> like, oh. Right, and you have to roll back the migration before you roll <laughs> right. back the code because otherwise the migration's not there anymore. Step one, redeploy that code. <laughs> yep. Step um, one, yeah, redeploy your broken code. Anyway, yeah, SQL is nice. So I love the idea of like, yeah, like it is like... I'm used to the Rails migration API, and it's super nice to be able to just be like, add index, this table, this, done. Right? That's not that much harder to write in SQL either, but it is, you know, it's a little bit more. But getting I think down for free, I think, is the biggest thing. Getting down for free is really nice, yeah. The command recorder or something, I think, is what does that in Rails. Um, that's probably the biggest change, yeah. But it is, again, like not having to look for something that handles, like, I don't know, foreign keys before foreign keys were, you know, introduced into Rails proper in 4.2 or whatever. Right. It'd be nice. Yeah, and, and, and that's just sort of where I'm coming from of like, and you can just use SQL and it's really easy. Right. And that, I'm going to design it for that being the first classes and like that's going to be where I start from and then anything else is going to be built on top of that. Cool. Anyway, um, you should come, you Derek and also you listener should come like, if you have thoughts on that, there is an open issue. Uh, I don't have a milestone on migrations yet, but it is going. It is a thing that I'm going to have be a blocker for 1.0. Cool. Um, and, and to answer your other question, I don't know if it needs to be part of this library. Um, like, it ultimately just comes down to if I do have a DSL, how much do, is that going to interact with the rest of uh, the DSL? Like, does it make sense for me to introduce an abstraction layer between them so that other things can be plugged into this? Because if it is just like I need a connection object, sure. The, the migration has its own connection interface, and then I implement that for diesel. And then this can be used with other things. But it just depends on like how much I, I want to interact with the rest of the, of the system. And if that interaction makes sense in the context of like, well, what if I'm just using Rust Postgres? Right. And having like divorcing the two, I'm just, I mean, I'm just spitballing at this point. But like divorcing the two means that any project it written in any language that runs against a Postgres database could potentially use like here's a migrations engine, right? Yeah. Like here's well, a if thing. I, if I do, I mean, if I if I actually abstract it, there's no reason it would even have to be a Postgres database, right? So that could be like the type of thing I was talking about that we had at Akamai, where it was like they had a bunch of tooling built up that did this, and it, you could use it regardless of your programming language. So that might just be an interesting tool to build <laughs> yeah. in Rust. Anyway, yeah, no, and and whatever it is, if I do do a DSL, I mean, the main lesson I've learned from just maintaining Rails is it either needs to be immutable or record like what API it was written against. Right. So that's because of migration changes. So, like when you rerun a migration after you've upgraded Rails, all of a sudden your schema is different, that kind of thing. Uh, and usually very slightly so, and you're like, what happened here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like that's definitely a thing I want to avoid. And that's also the thing that's turned me off to like the idea of the DSL in general. But at the same time, getting down for free is really nice. Getting down for free is really nice. And also the like just schema.rb is a lot easier to read through than schema than structure.sql in a Rails project. Yeah, but I'm, I, I might have schema.toml. 
I might have schema.toml and then have that have like a section that is everything that isn't tables at the bottom. And then that's just a SQL string. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly you could generate you could generate a schema.rb file from anything or a schema.toml file from basically anything. The only time I, I, I just look in there to see the structure of tables, really. And I guess also if something is indexed, but I typically will just use the database to check if something's indexed, I guess. But yeah, um. I don't know. Um, you know, there's things that like the way I want to handle timestamps is via database triggers. Um, and what's actually neat is in Postgres anyway, you can use the same trigger for the updated at uh, or the same function, the same stored procedure rather for the up- updated at trigger for every table because you just reference the, the rows as uh, new and old. Right. And so it's literally just if new dot um, updated at is not distinct from old dot updated at new dot updated at colon equals current timestamp. Right. Um, and so that's a thing. Though, like, I think we can probably agree at this point, right? Created that and updated that are useful to have. Yeah, I put them on everything by default. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I do probably want the migration system to insert that stored procedure for you automatically. And then that's the sort of thing where it's like, add timestamp trigger to table right. is a lot nicer than create trigger on update something something table name for each row execute procedure <laughs> exact function name. That's true. And then writing the reverse of that, which is no more concise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're making a good case. You're making you remember all of the pains of having to manually write down migrations. Hmm. Even when you had to manually write down, like in Rails three O or whatever, I think three one. Two, three O is when we got uh, change. No, I don't think so. I think change came in three one. Okay, um, we'll look it up. Anyway, we probably won't look it up. Uh, <laughs> uh, wait, even even having to write down yourself, like writing what you were just speaking as like the DSL code, is certainly a lot nicer than writing SQL. Often, even if yeah. it is repetitive. Well, and then, and then you know, there's always going to be the developers who, because writing down is so painful, just raise irreversible migration. <laughs> yep. Um, I've certainly but, never done that. Nope. <laughs> me neither. <laughs> but yeah, like, I'll, 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 uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to the pull request I did for, for crates.io because they've built their own migration architecture, which is actually probably what I will rip off slightly because it handles the, like, it basically creates the schema migration stable and handles that for you automatically. But basically, you, you write the up and down uh, the up and down form, and the up and down form in there is um, a function that takes a Rust uh, a Rust Postgres connection object um, and returns a result. Anyway, and this and this was just one migration where I basically add defaults to a bunch of things and triggers to a bunch of things, and like just the down version of that was just really painful and repetitive to have to write. And I think it's a great example of like as much as the DSL sucks, where it actually is good. Yep. Okay. I think we should wrap up. Okay. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to add about Diesel before we wrap up? Probably not. I don't know. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. If you want to come have me speak at your conference or, or meetup group, let me know. I'm happy to come talk about Diesel more. I could talk about Diesel for ages. Talk about type safety. Type nope. safety, design process, what went into it, lessons learned, whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, so they can get a hold of you at Sean at SeanTheProgrammer.com? Sean at SeanTheProgrammer.com or tweet me or any of the bike, t- bike shed contact info is fine, too. Okay. Uh, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 44. As uh, always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore Bike Shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>